0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to Technosocial. After a bit of a hiatus, we have some new and hopefully quite enthralling episodes for you. This first one is with John Viveki. This episode is in two halves, so look out for the second half coming out next week. John Viveki is a professor of Cognitive Science and Psychology at the University of Toronto, and the creator of the popular Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series on YouTube. In this episode we go over what The Meaning Crisis is and John's inspiration behind creating the YouTube series. We then branch off into topics such as the diminishing role of wisdom in modern society, as well as the varied and interesting ways that people react and try to compensate for the crisis of meaning in our society, finally ending quite appropriately with a discussion of the role that social media plays in The Meaning Crisis. Hope you enjoy.
1: Thank you for coming on the podcast John
2: thank you very much for having me I appreciate it
1: so you are a professor of cognitive science and psychology at the University of Toronto right yes, and sure. also behind uh, the quite popular YouTube series awakening from the meaning crisis that yes I think yeah. we will uh, go into so I had an initial question I just wanted to ask what's the difference between psychology and cognitive science
2: uh, so uh, psychology is an older discipline and psychology basically tries to understand the mind um, in terms of studying human behavior. So we run experiments on human participants and we do statistical analysis of that experimental data and then we come up with certain you know, uh, hypothetical, theoretical uh, constructs as to what's causing that behavior. That's psychology. And psychology is one of the disciplines within cognitive science. Because cognitive science emerges from the idea that when we're talking about the mind, we are actually talking about many different levels of reality that are studied by many different disciplines. We might be talking about the brain, in which case we'd want to be talking to neuroscientists. We might be talking about machine learning, information processing, in which case we might want to talk to somebody doing work in artificial intelligence. We might be talking about behavior, in which case we would be talking to a psychologist, as myself. Uh, We might be uh, talking about language use, the very thing we're using right now, because that is also indicative of cognition and the mind in important ways. We might be talking to a linguist. We might be talking about culture as something distinct from the natural world, right, Uh, and and a manifestation of mind in some sense. And in that sense, we we would be talking to an anthropologist. Each one of these researchers, she has her own particular method it might be participant observation of the anthropologist it might be making uh a, a, some kind of machine if you're in artificial intelligence it might be running experiments on participants if you're a psychologist each each researcher she has her own uh different method different theoretical terms different things that count as evidence different ontologies um, and i often use a metaphor of this, this is like a, like a different country with a different language each one of these disciplines and the thing is, we're all talking about mind. And here's the idea. The idea is it's, it's highly implausible that these different levels of reality, brain, information processing, behavior, language, culture, aren't interacting with each other. In fact, it's highly plausible, and there's good reason and evidence to believe they're really causally interacting with each other all the time. That's so we need, a, we need a discipline that's going to pick up on how the levels interact with each other by trying to get the disciplines to talk to each other. Trying to get psychology and linguistics to talk to each other, or psychology and neuroscience to talk to each other, or AI and neuroscience to talk to each other, or perhaps linguistics and anthropology, etc. That is cognitive science. And what cognitive science does is makes use of philosophical tools. Uh, philosoph- philosophy, properly understood, is, is not sort of BSing in a cafe, right? Uh, philosophy is learning about how to create new conceptual uh vocabularies, new theoretical grammars so that you can bridge between previously disparate discourses. That's what philosophy tries to do. So you're using basically philosophical tools to try and create a bridging discourse between all of these disciplines so that they can insightfully inform and transform each other and inspire new avenues of empirical investigation and theoretical argumentation. So that's what a cognitive scientist does. So most people uh, who are cognitive scientists, for example, at UFT, they will be cognitive scientists, and they will also be like there'll also be relevant experts in one of the home disciplines. Like I'm in uh, cognitive science and psychology. Uh, Jim John, my colleague, is in cognitive science and philosophy, etc. Uh, so that's uh, that's how they're re- related together.
1: Well, that's very interesting. It's, it's fun because it's not a term I've heard very often.
2: Bom- uh, I'm doing I'm doing my best to make a difference about that and get people much more aware of. Uh, What cognitive science is and and how really really important it is right now because cognitive science is one of the disciplines Maybe maybe one of the premier disciplines that's trying to put together the way in which the other sciences have pulled apart What the mind is and what a human being is I'm not they need to do that. That's what analysis does it Mm. it pulls things apart uh, But you need something that correspondingly also, you know, puts things back together to show their relationship and their causal interaction
1: Mm, It makes me think of what you've spoken about of how I think there's thinking of kind of trying to differentiate between things and pull things apart But we also need to balance it with the integration scaling up
2: Yes, very much very much. So I I, I see that that Dialectic right between integration and differentiation uh, Which I think is the hallmark of, of cognitive processing is very much something that we're trying to implement and exemplify in the practice of cognitive science
1: Mm. so is it the study of cognitive science that has brought you into this interest in meaning yes hmm.
2: precisely because the, the, the it's i mean since the cognitive revolution in the 1950s it's been i mean it, it you know like all the all revolutions it fragments into many different move um, independent movements but what they all shared the, the common theme of the cognitive revolution of the 50s was that organisms operate, behave, information process. All, they, they operate in terms of the meaning of the stimulus most of the time, rather than just the physical properties of the stimulus. So for example, if I say to you, fire, or if I if you smell smoke, or if I point at flames and you see the yellow, those are all very different stimuli but they have the same effect on you. You will flee, right, away because they all mean the same thing to you, even though physically they're very, very different stimuli. And so it became very apparent that human beings um, and and other cognitive organisms are are operating in terms of this meaning. And then trying to understand what this meaning is very quickly takes you outside of, well, I, I guess very quickly in the history of human thought. It took a while within uh, cognitive science, but it takes you out of a sort of purely, I don't I don't, I don't know quite how to say it, it takes you out of a purely sort of intellectualist approach to meaning, and you start to understand how um, embodied a, a, and how much of an existential issue uh, meaning is, and then you get into, right, how meaning, the meaning of cognition, right, reaches, can be, reach, can reach into very abstract things like you know, the meaning in language, but it can also reach down, if you'll allow me, these metaphors into how my experience is meaningful to me and my my life is meaningful to me. And so trying to understand, because the term itself is also equivocal and often used metaphorical, I mean the term meaning, trying to understand how all these different, if you'll allow me, all these different meanings of meaning uh, relate to each other and coordinate with each other and how they could be coordinated such to help alleviate the distress and the suffering that seems to be increasing in the world right now in important ways. Um, paradoxically, because, you know, in, in many in many sort of objective ways, the world is getting better. I'm, I, I'm not dismissing the very real threat of ecological crisis. But I'm talking about there's, you know, the world poverty levels are, are decreasing very quickly and rapidly. So by a lot of objective measures, uh, you know, people's lives are getting better. But yet there seems to be this pervasive increase um, in a kind of, Suffering and distress that seems to centre around uh, this issue of meaning.
1: Well, mm, it makes me think of in the, um, the video on the symptoms of the meaning crisis. Yes, the one I did
2: with Christopher Master Pietro.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking about um, suicide and the component of suicide that relates to lack of meaning in
2: people. Yes, yes. So yeah, so, so Tatiana Schnell has done some um, interesting work on that. Um, So, uh, let's be clear, nobody's denying that very often what can happen is people fall into clinical depression, and because of the clinical depression, they experience a kind of meaninglessness, and that, if untreated, can be fatal. But, she said, in addition to that, you can have people who have not fallen into clinical depression by any of the ways in which we diagnose it, yeah, nevertheless, they experience a, a deep kind of meaninglessness that it can it's independently drive uh, suicidal ideation and behavior. And so that means, and, th- and th- this, I think, I, I mean, th- th- this is convergent with a lot of evidence that we have that a sense of meaning in life is very much protective against suicide. A- and also, and let's remember a lot of things a lot, of, a lot of things are suicide that don't quite seem as suicide like suicide by cop and suicide by mass shooting In which you like we just had one in Canada, right? Where these people in BC were shot up some people like and 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 what they want is they want to be killed right and and and, and you can see how that particular style of suicide is so Expressive of a profound hunger for some kind of even momentary meaning some momentary sense of connectedness and fittedness to the world of belonging in some sense and so that 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 whole that whole thing right? and then we talked a whole about a whole spectrum of symptoms uh, right that's the, obviously the most I don't know what uh, I mean the suicide and, and these deaths of despair are are, 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 are certainly the most traumatic and, and, and traumatic uh, but there's all kinds of symptoms in the meeting crisis yes
1: mm, I guess we should probably say so I guess you probably get asked this a lot. What is the meaning crisis? And can you summarize it in a sentence?
2: <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I know. I mean, because I, you I got, mean, you I
0: got 20 I, syllables. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 20. Yeah. Because um, I, I take, what is it? 25 hours to do it in the video series. I mean, I take a long time trying to lay, and then the, the extra two hours with Chris. So I think that's like, um, and then we also wrote about it in the book. Right. And, Chris and I and Philip, and uh, Chris and I are working on, on, the, on the second book right now. Um, so let me try and put it this way. I'll, I'll take a, a minute or two, okay? Um, the very, the, the, the way, and we'd have to get into the deep cognitive science, I get it in the seri- in the, into the series, so I'll just gesture now. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be coy. There's more in-depth arguments there you, your listeners can uh, attend to if they wish. But the idea is that, that we have this, our, our cognition is enormously adaptive by being this very complex self-organizing process. But those very processes of self-organization and adaptivity also make us perennially susceptible to uh, patterns of self-deception, self-destruction. And those patterns of self-destruction and self-deception can uh, Tear apart the coherence of our sense of agency how we are connected to ourselves. They can tear apart our interpersonal Relationships our sense of how we're connected to other people They can tear apart like our the coherence of our worldview our sense of how we're connected to reality And so we can experience right this tremendous loss of a sense of connection to ourselves And or to other people and or to reality as a whole So we are perennially susceptible to this kind of despair Now, what has happened across cultures and across history is people have cultivated sets of practices, right, uh, for giving people psychotechnological tools for addressing these perennial problems, bringing about transformations of consciousness and cognition that basically, you know, deal with the self-deception, deal with the self-destructive behavior. So to put a word on it, people perennially have traditions of cultivating wisdom because that's what wisdom is, I would argue. Now, what's happened is that for a lot of historical reasons, which are being accelerated now because of social media and hyper technology, but reasons that go back probably to like the 11th and 12th century uh, in, in Europe, right? That cultivation of wisdom and, and that, you see, the cultivation of wisdom needs a set of institutions. It needs a tradition of people. And, and all of that has to be set within a worldview that legitimates it, valorizes it, guides it, and facilitates it. All of those things, the worldview, the institutions, the traditions, have all been radically undermined so that people are bereft. They do not know where to go to in, in, other than in an autodidactic sense. They do not know where to go to cultivate wisdom, at, in, you know and to respond individually and collectively to these perennial problems so these perennial problems overtake them and continue to overtake them and exacerbate it and they reverberate and resonate with each other and they and they have an amplificatory effect on each other and so because the perennial problems do not have a perennial response namely a right a ontologically worldview sanctioned set of you know practices for cultivating wisdom people fall into the meaning crisis there that's my best attempt to try and do it
1: you did a great job
0: (laughs) just a few more than 20 syllables unfortunately (laughs) Uh, we're gonna have to reject that answer (laughs)
1: um
0: so yeah um and like i guess my sort of question that just popped into my head while you were saying that um could you give any examples maybe again sort of no need to go into too much depth of sort of institutions and sort of traditions that, and let, you know, it's pretty obvious to anyone who looks at the last hundred years of history that institutions and traditions have changed drastically and radically across the world in the last hundred years. Um, What kinds of examples of institutions and traditions do we have that um, maybe used to facilitate Um, Wisdom and now don't
2: sure sure sure. So let me give you one. That's a very clear historical example Um, So we used to have a paired We used to have a a knowledge institution the university and it was paired Right, and it was instituted as paired with a wisdom institution the monastery Right and most people don't realize that those two were considered so monks and priests and, and right and philosophers they all formed this sort of family together so the, the the knowledge institute and the wisdom institute were constantly in dialogue with each other. Now, what happened, of course, is what the the sort of Neoplatonic Christianity, this sort of synthesis, synth- the synthesis of ancient philosophy and Christianity, had sort of fought, was falling into disrepute, and that was what was kind of behind the monastic vision. Um, and at the same time, the Protestant Reformation comes along. You should really call it the Protestant Revolution. And that whole, that, that mystical tradition is rejected. And simultaneously, the monasteries are shut down. Right? Um, and so the, the, the Wisdom Institute and its tradition gets rejected. And then the Knowledge Institution is now sort of orphaned. And what it does is it, it attaches itself to something else. It attaches itself to the state. To the secular state so the university becomes attached to the state rather than to the monasteries and the monastic system and so what happens is right the wisdom project right and the wisdom tradition falls into forgetfulness and the knowledge institution becomes autonomous in a sense but not truly autonomous right because it begins it it becomes enmeshed with uh, secular power political power so there's one example
0: cool yeah that's uh wow it's certainly certainly very uh interesting and so um and so that's kind of the world we live in now i guess that yes knowledge i guess now we would call it science it used to be called natural philosophy although sure maths also as a field kind of can be tagged on as a component to that yes yes Um, Um, that's now just completely dominant stem is where you make the most money like um and like Sort of religion religious institutions are um, the sort of the old ones that used to exist are sort of largely you know at least in western Europe just being abandoned by everyone
2: yeah and i mean and it's and although north america is different it 's also happening in north america the so the nuns n o n e s those who have no uh, allegiance to any established organized religion that 's also uh, uh, you know a, a growing and it will soon be. You know, I, I predict it'll be a majority group in North America within a decade as well, too. Yeah. Uh, it so just
0: became a majority here in England, I think, like three years ago. Yeah,
2: yeah. So that's going to keep happening. Now the thing is, if you do if you do the demographics and look at the nuns, um, they're yes, they're definitely a religious, but um, the, the overwhelming majority of them also often describe themselves with terms along something like spiritually hungry. Uh, things like that. They take up all kinds of transformative practices. There is in them a, a, a quest, this quest for meaning, this quest for practices that will bring about transcendence and the cultivation of wisdom. That's also a pervasive feature. So they, this, there's a big overlap. They're not identical, but they're not causally independent between these two groups: the groups who describe themselves as nuns and people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So these these are, and the problem is those are both horribly vague umbrella categories, um, you know, and so you you sort of, you have to look at them in more detail and more nuance. But yeah, generally what's happening is a a rejection of um, religion, except for sort of a fundamentalist backlash in which people are, have this sort of profound nostalgic desire to get back to something that uh, we can't get back to, I would argue. Um, and, and so, yeah, by and large, you, you're getting the rise of people who have rejected religion. By and large, these people also reject the totalitarian ideologies, the pseudo-religious ideologies uh, of the 19th and 20th century. They, by and large, reject sort of, again, important and dangerous exceptions, but by and large, they reject, you know, fascism, Nazism, you know, imperialism, nationalism, um, communism, all of these grand narrative, you know, totalitarian ideologies. They, they also reject those, too. And so what what, what I think, what, one way of trying to understand the plight of a lot of these people is they feel trapped uh, in that and when I talk to them, this is how they, they often express it. They feel trapped between, well, I'm not going to back to church or anything like that. That's just not an option for me. Yet becoming a communist or, you know, a, a, an imperial, like what? That, that's, that, that drenched the world in blood. And, uh, and so they're tra- they, they think these are exhaustive. There's the secular alternative and there's the religious alternative and there's nothing else. And so they feel stranded like in this no man's land, no person's land in between trying to cobble together something that will satisfy the perennial need for the cultivation of wisdom. Uh. I
1: think it's, it's interesting even that we use the word religion and religion having in the modern secular world, almost a dirty connotation, which yeah. leaves out the aspect of wisdom and cultivating yep. the higher sense yep. of self, which is, well, which it seems historically has been attached to it but doesn't necessarily seem to still be attached to it at the moment like it's still possible to go to church or to be a practicing buddhist without really being a practicing christian or practicing buddhist it's like yeah. holding the words almost
2: yes yes so uh yeah i the, i think there's a sense in which for many people religion has been hollowed out um yeah, and definitely. and and so Part of the way I analyze this, um, and this is shared by, uh, somewhat by other people that I'm in, in. They have different opinions, but there's also convergence. People like I, I talked to Paul Vanderclay and Jonathan Pajot and other people about this. Um, I, I would argue that what happened to religion is the process of transformation of consciousness and cognition, character and communitas, right, that we call ultimately, you know, wisdom and self transcendence that process um, that, that reaches into, you know, the machinery of the self and the mind has been neglected at the expense of adherence to sets of propositions uh, and propositional beliefs. And, and, and this was also, this is what the two sides of the seeming exhaustive Categories share the ideology. Listen to the word ideology is about sets of propositions that are to be asserted, right, um, and 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 to you know you're supposed to declare your allegiance to. And, and so both sides are very creedal, and they process everything sort of this through this propositional knowing. And I would argue that that has cut us off, and this is why the religion feels hollowed out, that has cut us off from these other ways of knowing, the procedural knowing and the perspectival and the participatory that I think have so much to do with the generation uh, of the felt reality of meaning in life that that's why religion feels hollow for a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. That's why people engage in a lot of these practices, and I would say in a religious manner without realizing it. You'll, You'll talk to this person, are you religious? No, no. Tell me what you do on, on Sunday. I get up every Sunday and I go to yoga and I meet with a bunch of people and we all do yoga together and then we chant and we sing and, it, and then we talk about it afterwards and then I come home. It's like, and, and well, yeah. that's not that's religion. I don't worship a God or assert any belief. Yeah, I get that. It doesn't feel like, you know, adherence to a creed. But you're doing what used to be, right, or what has been hollowed out from, uh, what used to be called religion. Uh, there's two etymologies of religion. One is religio, uh, which is to bind together this sense of connectedness. The other is religere, which means to read back, you know, to recover. Um, and so both of those, um, I think, point to this, uh, that this, this function that used to be carried in religion of, remember we talked about re- revitalizing this connectedness to yourself, to other people, to the world around you now you're right i think things other than religion have done this one of the things that i explore in the series and i'm going to explore in the next series i'm doing is how uh, how there has been philosophy i call them philosophias rather than philosophy because philosophy and i i i'm a philosopher so i'm not dissing philosophy philosophy is this analysis of concepts and theories it's a very important practice but ancient philosophy Philosophia was the love of wisdom. That's literally what the word meant and and as Pierre know and many people are now arguing It's an entire transformative way of life that tries to give us, you know, ecologies of practices sets of psychotechnologies uh, for cultivating wisdom and revitalizing these connections uh, that have been so uh, made, made it rendered so tenuous uh, for so many people. So I think that's why uh, people so what, one final point on that before I talk too much, probably have talked too much, but notice how what seems like an exhaustive trap well it's either religion or the totalitarian ideologies is actually not an exhaustive category because you can drop below it by saying, "Oh no, no, both of these are missing you know the perspectival and procedural and participatory knowing and the transformational processes, and that's where I can actually go as an alternative to both of them. And we have a rich philosophical history, you know, the Neoplatonic schools and Stoicism that point to that very real living possibility. That's why Stoicism is having such a huge revival right now.
0: Mm. Interesting, yeah. And I think it's certainly true that religion is like, really hollow now i was actually talking to a friend of mine who has some very catholic parents and he he always said he was quite disappointed when he went to church because there was this real rejection of anything spiritual and it was really mostly just a focus on sort of like what was specifically written in the bible and just oh having good morals adhering to the principles and not no actual sort of engagement of like the spiritual aspect of religion and i think maybe that as actually like a reaction of Religious institutions to the basically the effect of science in the modern oh world. totally
2: totally totally
0: kind of like oh, oh. Well, science is doing great and that really rejects yeah. all spirituality I mean, necessarily yeah. reject spirituality but it, for most people it seems like it does and so they kind of like, yeah. oh, we will emulate uh, that but then um, uh, I'd be interested to hear what you have to think about something a thought that I had quite recently while I was um I was at a music festival and yeah. I kind of had this thought like music is kind of the new religion yes. because I mean in, in in the past religion always sort of co-opted um, art to yeah. legitimize itself you had you know the obvious ones are just gargantuan cathedrals or the fact yeah. that back in sort of medieval times the only sort of significant art that got preserved was either you know some of it would be to do with like rulers and monarchs but the rest of it was all religious yes very um, much. and even one of the big things that influenced protestantism was the humanist movement in art which was kind of like just toning down the religiosity in the art yes yes, so, yes. Um, and this then is
2: that, a very, very, i agree with this totally keep going
0: yeah, and then so um and then music was also a huge part of that every good church has an organ a lot of older sort of music even going back only say 100 200 years is really very religiously kind of focused. And I think sort of in the modern era, sort of music and musical scenes have actually now disassociated from religion, but going to say, uh, you know, a, a, a gig or a concert has a lot of the aspects of worship. You have, oh. I mean, you have the music itself, obviously. There's also usually a lot of art involved. On top yeah. of that, it's a large congregation yep. of people yep. coming together to engage in some kind of, like, sort of thing that binds them together because they all enjoy and relate to a specific kind of music, which is also why you tend to make friends when you go to these kind of events. And then yeah. you could even correlate that to, like, the rave scene where people yep. go to these, you know, events that last all night And they take drugs. I obviously haven't done this before. I would never dream of doing something like that. (laughs) I'm talking, I'm entirely talking from my (laughs) imagination idea of what it's like to go to something like this. But, um, uh, and then they sort of stay up all night on loads of drugs, talking to loads of people they haven't met before, listening to music with a really repetitive rhythm that actually sounds not not exactly similar but very close to a lot of sort of ritualistic practices that yeah, can imagine happen in, it, the, yeah. in a lot yeah. of the sort of paganistic uh, yeah. uh shamanistic religions yeah uh, in places you know like in the amazon they do ayahuasca ceremonies is that yep. Yep. really so different from taking a bunch of mdma and going to see Bondax? i i think it is quite different but there's important similarities there
2: yeah um, I'm- sorry keep going
0: oh no well that's really yeah that's just so so it sort of occurred to me while i was at this music festival like there there is a religious aspect now to music and i think people do search for um some of the 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 wisdom and i think maybe more the community aspect of spirituality in music
2: i I would say both i mean i think i mean uh, i mean the, the danger with 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 doing something without an established tradition is you have the autodidactic it tends to be much shallower; it, it doesn't have much developmental depth to it. But nevertheless, taking all of that into account is an important caveat. These people, especially in the rave, right? But I would say even in you know a lot of concerts, where especially when people, you know, I I I, I remember taking my uh, one of my kids to you know like when it was punk and the, the mosh pit and all of that sort of stuff. Right, and I had to rescue him actually from it. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, but the thing of it is, right? These people are, are yeah, they're seeking communitas. They're seeking that shared flow state very much um, But but that's also I mean the flow state is is a borderline mystical state It's all it's it's right right. It has many of the features of a mystical state um, and, and they're they're seeking especially if they're pumping it up with psychedelics, right? They're seeking a, a profound kind of alteration of consciousness. They're trying to create some kind of sense of self-transcendence um, Yeah, so and, and notice, and notice what's going on here. Very, I mean, I mean, sometimes there, there's spoken word, uh, but very often, uh, especially, um, right? In, in some situations, the music is, is, is pro, it's pro, it's primarily the music itself, and it's taking you out of this propositional. Priority, right? You're not giving priority to the to propositional processing, right? You you know how to move, right? And you know what it's like to experience the music, and you can feel yourself and, and your environment being transformed, and you're participating in that process of transformation. This is what I mean. People are finding ways, right? And, and they wouldn't describe it as religious, but I think your insight is 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 bang on. I mean, that that's that that, that is people basically tapping into some perennial psychotechnologies, right, ramped up by some amps and some psychedelics uh, to try try and bring about the changes. Now, the problem that faces those people, right, is what to do after the concert, right? What do you do after the concert? You see, there isn't, you can't go back and read something like Plato right that right. has that that you know was somebody in this area who's writing a deep philosophical reflection on these experiences and trying to situate them into a, a broader way of life there's nobody doing that or at least i don't know of anybody doing that right and there there there, there isn't a sense of community after <laughs> the concert and 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 what do you do let's say you have truly kind of spiritual or transcendent experience in the concert what do you do with that experience so the temptation because we don't know what to do is to fall into a kind of narcissism and say look at how special and unique I am look at my wonderful wonderful special experience that guarantees that I have meaning because I am so unique and special in all of the universe only I have this (laughs) that will shine for all time because if you don't have a wish tradition how are you going to appropriate that and try and turn it into something that has a lasting meaning it's it's very tempting i'm not saying it's inevitable but it's very tempting that when you walk away from the concert that either gets it gets lost as just oh well or it becomes this narcissistic thing that you then get wrapped around probably in a kind of unhealthy way so i think you're right that that's very much you should see music uh, and these kinds of events as, as spiritual and not in a vacuous hallmark sense of that term, but deeply spiritual, deeply pursuing transformative uh, processes. But again, they get orphaned very rapidly. They get orphaned in people's lives and in the culture and we, and, and we don't really know what to do with them. I think it's also important that music, like I said, music, pure music is non-propositional. Uh, And yet it's it's doing this tremendous thing where it's manipulating what we find salient and it's triggering insight machinery and flow experiences And I think these are all I think these are all ways in which we activate and accentuate and appreciate and celebrate This our machinery for relevance realization our machinery for zeroing in on relevant information making these deep kinds of connections So I think that's why it's so profound for us why it's a universal for example
1: Mm. You know, something that comes to mind for me on this topic relates to a conversation I've had with with my dad when he talks about when he was young and growing up and listening to music with his friends. And the distribution channels were so much smaller that everybody kind of liked the same bands. And if a band had a new release, someone would get it on the record and then everyone would go around to the house and listen to it.
2: Yeah. I'm old enough that that was the case for like the Beatles, right?
1: Yeah.
2: The Beatles were this this unifying thing, almost religious. Yeah, very much.
1: Whereas like like with our generation, it's it seems like it's this paradox in that because there's so much music available online now through YouTube or through Spotify, each of us can have an incredibly well refined and curated personal music library that is utterly yeah. us, that has no connection to what anybody else yeah. around us is listening to.
2: Yeah, so I mean, that's part of the problem of, I have to say this very carefully because I want I don't want to be misunderstood our culture in some senses overvalues freedom We we are we, we value freedom for its own sake I can certainly um,
0: think of a few people who if they heard just that sound bite would uh, Probably turn up outside your door with like a placard or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's why I want to speak very carefully uh, 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 Because I uh, uh, I think, I mean, I, I think, you know, freedom is an important good. It's an important political good. Uh, but I, th- I I think of it ultimately as an instrumental good. Like you, you, you're free from self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior, and you're free to do something. Freedom in and of itself is a value only in what it frees you from and what it frees you to. That's what I'm trying to say. And so I often say to people, you know, I think my project is ultimately to sort of lose a lot of my freedom and they go, what do you mean? What's I want my thoughts to be, I I want to learn how to make my thoughts as much as possible determined by what's true. I want to lose my free so that my thoughts are really determined by what's true, my action by what's good and, and my my perception by what's beautiful. That sounds to me like, you know, the, the best possible life. If, if I have to give up freedom of choice so that, I I get better at zeroing in on what's true and what's good and beautiful. That seems to me like uh, what I should be doing. And so, I think I think like we did it for really good historical reasons. You know, there was there's you know there was lots of you know people were exploited, they're oppressed. That continues to be the case. I'm not denying any of that. But we, (laughs) we we sort of like 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 we've abandoned wisdom. We've kind of orphaned freedom. It's just this thing, well, freedom, freedom for, like, but freedom from what and freedom for what? Like, well, you need to be asking those questions again. And so that's what I'm trying to say. You need to, you need to think about, you know, yes, we're, we're getting this maximization of choice, but, you know, is it really serving your well-being or is it serving the capacity for the market to sell more products, and you know, you know, like, like, you have to be really, 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 really cautious about evaluating all of this. Uh, and you know, I think it's how I, I that that expansion. I mean, there's there's I forget the name of the person. I wish I could cite them. Um, they're talking about the death of melody. That as we get you know this massive uh, diversification of music tastes, uh, trying to grab interest becomes more and more uh, you know, the, the, the goal and the, and the so- songs, like, like I grew up in like the Beatles, there'd be a hook and there'd be a melody around the hook. But what you see is that the melodies are disappearing and you're just getting hooks and repetition and beat. And it, they talk about the death of melody, uh, which again, I think is kind of symptomatic of what we're going through here, in which what's happening is we're losing a lot of the complexity, the transformative challenge of the music, and we're just getting caught up in the, the super salience of the beat and the hook. Uh, because that's 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 the only thing that can ri- can rise above the cacophony of choice.
1: Mm, well, not only that. Like, I had a conversation with a friend who's a who's a musician, and she was telling me that she's had struggle with trying to get was having meetings with record companies and labels. And basically, the question they ask when you go in is, "How many followers do you have on Instagram?" Right, right. That
2: right, is right, right. Yeah. yeah. Like,
1: rather than being like, "Let me hear your," "Let me hear." Yeah,
2: your, yeah.
1: It's like. Are you a worthy investment do you already have
2: uh, wow listeners? Yeah. you see and I'm concerned with that in general because I uh, one of the arguments I make and I think I, I, I sort of integrate Socrates and Harry Frankfurt in this is this notion of uh, this notion of uh, bullshit in which uh, we're not lying right what we're doing is like, the liar tells you something that she believes is not true so she believes it's not true but she tells it to you as if it's true right because she's depending on your commitment to the truth to modify your behavior. But the bullshitter is trying to make you indifferent to whether or not it's true. The Bullshitter, I would argue, is, is relying on how salient something is to you, how catchy it is to you, how much the beat will become an earworm and stick in your head, regardless of whether or not you are to agree with, believe in the words that happen to be paired with it. But we know from advertising that it doesn't matter if you know it's not true. If it's been made salient to you, you'll buy the product. You'll beha- your, your behavior will be altered. You'll be manipulated. And see, and, and for me, that's that—that's the quintessential way in which we deceive ourselves. We can't lie to ourselves, but we can bullshit ourselves because we can direct our attention to make things salient, and then that gets us into the habit of finding those things salient, which tends to capture our attention, and then we just sort of—you get this vicious cycle where we lead ourselves into being having our behavior modified completely indifferent to whether or not it's true or false it just matters that it gets attention and I think one of the things that's exacerbating that well, it's, is what is this medium that we're using right now right social media and YouTube and all these things right as you were indicating oh and it gives a, it gives priority to salience over any kind of truth content and that's really I mean that's very very dangerous
0: so, this is kind of a good sort of segue into like our one of our main sort of things, topics that we wanted to look into when we started the podcast, which is sort of how specific technologies end up having social effects and what the yep. technologies that do that are and what the social effects are. And I think. I mean, ironically enough, I actually got Facebook back today after a year of no Facebook. And um, right. I, I, wish, I wish I had a reason as noble as the negative effects of social media on society for deleting it. But it was actually the negative effects of alcohol that caused me to delete it um, <laughs> accidentally as well. And I preempted my sober self by changing the password so I wouldn't be able to go and get it back. Um, but uh, <laughs> so like um, I think the, your, the, um, the crisis of meaning to me seems to be something that has roots that go like way way back but in many ways you could look at social media as kind of like the ultimate form of the crisis of meaning yeah sort of internet communication allows you to so easily and quickly like just suck the meaning out of really any topic and any interaction and turn it into either a game or, the, or into like um, basically to, 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 to make it meaningless. And I think it, a, a weird sort of thing for me, result of this is, is, um, is kind of like memes and internet humor. How yeah. in a lot of ways on the internet, everything pretty quickly becomes a joke, which yes. is on the one hand, it's great, it's really funny like, and it's enjoyable, but you stuff that you could never really turn into a joke in real life can be very quickly yes. made into a joke on the internet. And to me, that seems sort of symptomatic of a society that has kind of a crisis of meaning that... Yes. And then and then and then another sort of a form of that is is trolling is basically just yeah. people I, I do it myself because i love it but um just going out on the internet and just trying to frustrate other people by just saying things right. and um uh you know in, in in real life this would get you precisely nowhere you'd lose friends by the day yeah. but it's sort of possible and even expected on the internet nowadays yeah. just because people can do it but i think maybe does it reflect something deeper in our society that people yes. feel the urge to just go out and frustrate other people while using the veil of seriousness um yeah. I, and I think
2: that's so. considered
0: an enjoyable thing to do
2: I, I think so i mean i think there's lots of things going on here first of all yeah i i, I, I the metaphor i use is i think social media is an accelerant like the way you know when an arsonist uses an accelerant to get a fire going, and so the fire, the fire of the meeting crisis has been burning for a while. But I think social media is very much uh, an accelerant in a lot of ways. Um, so there's a couple, there's a, a lot of important issues here. Uh, one, we want, want, want to ask, what, like, why is why are people increasingly living their lives in the virtual domain rather than in the actual domain? Let's remember that what virtual means, by the way. Right. Um, and how it used to be connected to virtue uh, and we've lost that connection, uh, which is a really uh, uh, important thing we, we should go back to thinking about. But uh, <clears throat> so, we, we, well, first of all, what is it they're finding about? What is it, uh, why is it ultimately unsatisfying? Uh, and then why is violence and tri- why are violence and trivialization? I, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily referring to physical violence. I'm referring to what you're, you were discussing dealing with the, the conversational violence, trolling, you know, dismissing, you know, and, 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 and you're destroying and debunking and, and all of this sort of, uh, th- th- this, this whole violent adversarial uh, winner-take-all kind of uh, destructiveness.
0: Hmm. Do, do, are there any videos of you out there entitled something on the lines of uh, calmly Dismantles Feminism or something along those lines? Because it no. seems that every, every internet figure eventually has one made about them.
2: No, no, so I've made it it an explicit and repeated principle that I will not do that. Um, um, That's very important to me. I will criticize people philosophically in my series, and I have, and I will criticize people who I think misrepresent, for example, rationality or wisdom and purport to be experts of it. I think that's my Socratic duty, but I will do it with argumentation and evidence. And I'm also willing to talk to people in a very respectful manner who might have ont- significant ontological differences with me if I believe, and I'm, u- I'm using this term decidedly, if I believe they're people of good faith and that they, they really want to get into a real discussion and a real dialogue. Um, so I'm not a religious person, but I will talk to people of good faith from a religious orientation if I feel that they are bringing genuine wisdom to bear on the meaning crisis i can learn from them and that's the, that's the, i mean if you look at the platonic dialogue that's the plato compares philosophia the love of wisdom with philo philo uh, nikeia the love of victory right if you're going in and you want to win that's you you're saying right up in front i can't learn from that person there's nothing I can learn from that person. There's no insight available. My job is to destroy, crush them, you know, get their, get suck away their audience, do what, all of that sort of stuff, right? But if, if you go in saying, well, no, what, what I really want to do is I want to cultivate wisdom. I want to try and respond to the meaning crisis. I'm going to try and learn what I can from this person, try and get some insight from them. Then That's, that's how I try to carry out uh, my dialogues. And I've made that an explicit point. And this is because, like what I was saying, I don't believe that we can solve the meaning crisis. In fact, I think we will accelerate it if we focus on ideological battle. If we focus on, you know, victories of sets of propositions, creed one creed over the other. That is how we got into this problem, and exacerbating that by the magnifying effect of social media is something I'm philosophically opposed to. And so, that is something I am very strongly. Hesitative. I will debate in, you know, in in, in, the, in dialogue with people because, you know, we, we, we ha- we're trying to get at something, as long as there is a sense of a genuine shared commitment to something other than the victory here and now between, in, in, between combatants. So you won't see that from me. I mean, people can obviously cut and paste from my work and do whatever the hell they want to do with it. But if they're doing it, they're doing it explicitly against what I have explicitly stated I stand for and how I want to, you know, how I want to comport myself in this whole endeavor. I, I do not want to build a reputation on the back of any kind of political or controversy, right? That's why I was so careful when I brought up the topic of freedom. I want, I want, people, I want, I want people to respond to my arguments in kind. That's what I'm after. And so you won't see that. Um, but to back to your point. I mean, so the, the problem, with, of course, with social media it, it, is it, it magnifies bias, right? So we, we have tremendous biases. Uh, I, I study this, right, in, in terms of our cognition, like one I often use to help people because it's very readily apparent in social media. We suffer from confirmation bias. We're biased to only look for things that confirm our beliefs rather than to search for things that challenge our beliefs. And social media, social media is pernicious because it gives you the appearance of checking with others, right? It gives you the appearance, think of bullshit. It gives you the appearance of checking with others, but actually what you're doing is pre-selecting those people who are going to agree and confirm with you. So it gives you the appearance as if you're in dialogue when in fact all you're doing is echo chambering right this and that's just one example I'm not, that that's one example of many ways right in in which right it magnifies our biases and, and think about ways in which it also bullshits ourselves think about why Instagram for example is and there's more and more evidence on this is so deleterious to people's mental health because your brain you look at these pictures of these people who are they seem to be leaving these idyllic lives they're not of course and at one level notice the, notice the bullshitting again you know it's not true you know that they're, <laughs> they're staging this and they're only taking a picture you know, of a, you know, a, a minuscule fraction of their entire otherwise shitty day, right? You know all of that. It <laughs> doesn't matter to parts of your brain because the Instagram makes it super salient to you and then you feel by comparison that your life is less. Mm,
0: yeah, and definitely. We,
2: and, we, and we know this is happening. I, one of the things I advise people I said you know well, I'm kind of, you know one of and one of the best things you can do for your mental health is get off Instagram right and I guess maybe they'll sue me for saying that but I mean there's this <laughs> increasing, increasing evidence that it's just deleterious to your mental health so those those are two examples I'm trying to give you of how social media right can be such a bullshit magnifier in such powerful and profound ways and that's why it's an accelerant on the meaning crisis and then like I say once you're into that one way in which people make themselves salient right and thereby contribute to the bullshit while having the appearance of committing to dialogue but not really committing to dialogue is this combative attacking debunking demolishing you know and ultimately even the you know the most simple form of it trolling other people right and and, and that right because that's that's the way to to, to garner some minuscule attention but the problem is it moves towards more and more frustrated behavior because it ultimately doesn't it's 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 junk food for the soul right it doesn't actually satisfy the needs for transformation the needs for the cultivation of wisdom the needs to really connect to oneself and to other people Right now, you know, you you have 40,000 likes but you don't have any friends like it's like it's just (laughs) not It's it's just it's to deny our whole evolutionary heritage our whole cultural history And and I'm sorry you as an individual just do not have that power to deny your biological and cultural heritage You're just not that strong. None of us are right and and so um, I, uh, while you're bullshitting yourself and creating the appearance of connection and the appearance of dialogue, what you're actually doing is frustrating the very needs that you want met. And, 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 and so this is very much like an addiction, right? You, you're, you're, something is taking the place of a genuine need and you keep pursuing it because it gives you a momentary earth satisfaction, but it's ultimately starving you of what you need. And so the whole thing, and that's what we're seeing, it's accelerating, it's accelerating and accelerating.
1: Mm, well said I think
2: thank you